Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Well, listeners, welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino, and I am here at the Cardozo Law School in New York City with Professor Stanley Fish. Professor, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Professor, you got started as an English professor at the University of California, correct? That is correct, in 1962. And then since then, you've been teaching at colleges and universities across the country, and you've ventured into law. How do you go from English to law? Well, the quickest answer is by playing basketball, because uh, in the uh, middle 70s, I used to play basketball uh, with a friend who was then teaching at the University of Maryland Law School. And he and I and another member of uh, the Johns Hopkins English Department uh, would, after games, especially when we lost, we would sit around and we found that there was an intersection between uh, our two fields. uh, And the point of intersection was interpretation, and along with interpretation, evidence. So questions of exactly how do you figure out what words mean uh, and what data or evidence is legitimately brought forward in support of an argument that you might be making, there were many cross-connections between the attempts to interpret poems on the one hand uh, and to interpret cases on the other. So we began to think about this, and then we joined and taught a course uh, in it, uh, one semester at Johns Hopkins, the next semester the University of Maryland Law School, and that's how I got started in the law. Well, now, what was your focus in English? My focus in English was uh, non-dramatic poetry of the 16th and 17th century. Although before that, I was a a medievalist, and so I was also doing uh, non-dramatic poetry of the 14th and 15th century, beginning with Langland, Chaucer, and the Gawain poet, um, and and going up uh, to Wyatt and Surrey. Uh, But later on, my specialty became uh, 17th century uh, non-dramatic verse, which means John Milton, John Donne, George Herbert, uh, Andrew Marvell, Ben Johnson, and then a whole host uh, of uh, lesser figures. So in your book, and the reason I'm having you on the show today, of course, is that you have a new book coming out. It's November 5th, correct? I believe so. It's election day, right? They keep pushing the date. (laughs) The book is called The First, How to Think About Hate Speech, Campus Speech, Religious Speech, Fake News, Post-Truth, and Donald Trump. And you've actually written about free speech before. You had a 1993 book called There's No Such Thing as Free Speech, and That's a Good Thing. So makes sense that we have you on this show. Before we dive into the book, since you mentioned John Milton, Areopagitica, it's something that's held in high regard amongst free speech advocates like myself. You actually discuss it in your new book a little bit. Since you're an expert, what's the correct way to pronounce it? Areopagitica or Areopagitica? Uh, my expertise does not extend to that question. <laughs> But you talk in the book, and this is something that has bothered us free speech advocates all along, is because it's such flowery, glowing, and insightful language about the principles that undergird free speech. Uh, A lot of it would be uh, reflected in what uh, John Stuart Mill wrote in On Liberty. But 
John Milton was an imperfect messenger because he thought free speech should be allowed. And he was writing against primarily prior restraints, uh, except for Catholics. Yes. Well, uh, my position is that uh, what seems unusual, or at least troubling, uh, in Milton's uh, strictures against uh, Catholics um, is, in fact, an emblem of what all free speech advocates uh, at some point face, let me explain. The reason that at a certain point Milton says, well, when I say all of these things about allowing free expression of opinion, I don't mean Catholics. Then he says, then we extirpate, a word which means pull out by the roots. Uh, And the reason is that since he's uh, promoting the the free flow of discourse uh, in the service of the uh, search for truth, uh, he believes that uh, Catholics... uh, are dedicated to shutting down the flow of discourse and allowing uh, only their own point of view uh, to be heard and are themselves addicted to censorship. So since they're addicted to censorship, they must be censored uh, so that uh, free speech uh, uh, in the service of the search for truth uh, can continue. And that led me to conclude long ago and to uh, repeat again um, um, in, in, in the new book is that when you... Uh, advocate free speech, or when you are, let's say, a partisan of free speech, you have to ask and answer the question, what is free speech for? And any answer that you give necessarily commits you to censorship down the road. Because if you uh, decide, as Milton did, that free speech is for the facilitation of the search for truth, then you must acknowledge, or at least he acknowledges, that there are some forms of speech that rather than advancing that search, frustrate it. Therefore, censoring those forms of speech is not a violation of the First Amendment, but a realization of its principles. But if the purpose of free speech is the search for truth, isn't part of understanding the truth, hearing what people have to say and what they actually believe? So, for example, it's important to know who the Nazi is in the room, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, They're speaking their odious opinions tells us something about the world. And it's important to know know that about the world in order to better formulate perhaps public policy. Right. Uh, what you have just said is standard First Amendment doctrine. And, uh, you're going to hear a lot of and that. And therefore, none the worse, for, none the worse uh, for that. But what it assumes in the context mm-hmm. of uh, what I usually call the psychology of liberalism, what it assumes is that the mind is a rational instrument uh, which can coolly, or which at least should coolly survey uh, what comes before it uh, so that uh, true statements and false statements uh, can be dis- distinguished and harmful speech and uh, helpful speech uh, can be uh, distinguished. What Milton and others see uh, is that when you let something into the world, a form of speech into the world, which rather than promoting First Amendment values uh, is dedicated to shutting them down, you're not being faithful uh, to the First Amendment. Uh, And in fact, what you're doing is promoting the possibility that vicious and false speech will get into the atmosphere and then be accepted or at least considered as a possibility by persons who have never heard of it before. So that the whole argument for censorship, at least on the Miltonic level, depends Uh, on uh, a less sanguine view of the human mind and its rational capacity than, let's say, we find in John Stuart Mill, who is much purer, 
uh, from your point of view, uh, uh, on this question. Hobbes, in the 29th chapter of uh, Leviathan, points out that if you have seditious speech uh, freely allowed, uh, as he says the Greeks recommend, then what you are in fact establishing are the conditions for tyrannicide, chaos, and civil war. Now these two points of view have continually vied for uh, uh, what we might say intellectual supremacy in, in the free speech universe. On the one hand, a dedication to the free flow of speech and the assumption that the more speech, the better. And on the other hand, a sense that there are forms of speech uh, which are so harmful and so deleterious uh, that rather than furthering the project, uh, they undermine it. Yeah, but what if we accept that latter premise, everything, that there are things that are so odious that if we could construct a framework to prevent their expansion and expression within the world, we would. I think most free speech advocates, and including myself, would argue that no such framework exists and no one has put forth one that would work in practice. And that as soon as you give the power to those in authority to determine, as uh, Thomas Hobbes discussed in Leviathan, what is detrimental to the public sphere, uh, it's going to be applied inconsistently. You get something like what Erdogan in Turkey does, where he labels terrorists who aren't terrorists. Any criticism of him is a, is a criticism of the state and and weakens the state's power. Our present president says the same thing of his opponents. True, true. So how do we grapple with those concerns in an environment where we can accept some of the premises, but the actual practical implication of them are impossible. This is usually called in the literature the who is to judge problem. Mm -hmm. And my response to it seizes on a word that you used a couple of times in your question, which is the word power. And what in fact you're saying, and I quite agree with you, is that once you allow uh, a, uh, a view uh, that uh, identifies some forms of speech as so inimical uh, to the social health that they must be, uh, uh, in some way uh, regulated. Once you allow that, what you've done is made a political football of free speech principles. And my, uh, my uh, thesis is it always has been. So that, in fact, if you allow the free flow of speech and do not adopt uh, any uh, of the uh, uh, negative safeguards put forward in different ways, uh, by Milton and Hobbes, who, by the way, were intellectual enemies, of course. If you don't do that, what you're allowing uh, is, uh, is, is other forces, equally political, uh, uh, to, in effect, um, uh, rule the dance. In other words, taking politics out of the free speech business isn't a possible thing to do. So the question from my point of view, do you want the politics to be in there, frankly, we are against these forms of speech because they are inimical to our particular set of beliefs? Uh, or do you want the same kind of work to be done surreptitiously uh, under the surface uh, in the name of something called the marketplace of ideas, which has never existed, which never will exist, and could never do the work 
that its proponents say that it does do. So let's make real some of the concepts that you're discussing here. In what ways can free speech not be applied as a neutral principle? In what ways does politics, do politics enter in to the equation and frustrate the, the efforts, uh, the, be- the best intended efforts of free speech advocates to apply the principles neutral? Yeah, I think the best, they are best intended. I, I, I attribute only sincerity and goodwill uh, to strong free speech proponents. The answer to that is at least the one I give uh, in, in this book is to say that there is no free speech principle. And I'm not the only one who is saying that. Celebrated legal academics like Robert Post, former dean of the Yale Law School, and uh, Larry Alexander, uh, chaired professor at the University of San Diego Law School, and others have made the point that rather than being a single thing or principle to which you could point, free speech doctrine is a series of slogans um, and uh, rhetorical sound bites, which are applied differently in different situations. Uh, so that's what I meant when I said in my uh, 1993 or four book, there's no such thing as free speech. Uh, what I meant is there's no such thing as an identifiable free speech doctrine that you could, in fact, define in a way that uh, could then be applied to specific political situations. Rather, I am arguing, the shape of specific political situations will determine exactly what free speech means in that situation. Or as I put it in the book, politics is always and already inside the First Amendment, except in a very, very limited circumstance like a Hyde Park corner or some other place where people stand up and in succession are allowed to say anything they like. Why? Because it's recognized that that form of speech has no consequences. That's what it's there for. It's, we might call it the theater of free speech. That kind of, that kind of context or the uh, context of your or, uh, singing to yourself or ranting to yourself uh, in the shower are the only two free speech moments that might be considered pure. Another way to put this is, in the, in the, gener- in the usual free speech uh, doctrine, freedom of speech is held to be the default state, and exceptions to that are considered to be special and must be defended by special arguments. My view is that constraint and censorship are the default states, and that the idea or the ideal of some kind of free speech moment only uh, exists in very special cases like the Hyde Park Corner. Well, I think free speech advocates, though coming at it a bit differently than you do, would argue that censorship is the default state, at least when applied to government action. I mean, it wasn't until recent centuries even that people started considering free speech as an important value, although you did see it in uh, certain discourse in Greece, ancient Greece and, and right. ancient Rome as well. That's correct. Um, but they also had exceptions uh, too. But you didn't start to see the First Amendment absolutism as a lot of people describe it today until you know, after 1919. That's correct. That's absolutely correct. Uh, of, of this century. Uh, and I think a lot of free speech advocates I mean, the ACLU's project for the first 50 years or so was getting the Supreme Court more or less to the position that it, it, it is at today. 
Uh, now, they might have disagreements with how far the court has come, but in the early part of the century, uh, if you were a communist and wanted to go on the street corner or hand out literature, uh, and especially during wartime and especially during the Red Scare, it, it, wasn't, a, it wasn't clear that you had the right to do that. Uh, it's pretty clear that you would have the right to do that today. So we in the free speech community see that a lot of the carve-outs that the court have made to free speech. Because when you look at the clause, it's Congress shall make no law uh, abridging the freedom of speech. Uh, now, you could either interpret that as literal, like any speech, any form of expression must not be abridged. Or you can ask yourself, what is the freedom of speech that the, that the drafters of the Constitution or the Bill of Rights sought to define? Uh, if you look at it from the latter perspective, that free speech has a definition, uh, then you could create some avenues for restricting speech. If you look at it as it as just kind of a definition speech, any enunciation, abstract, yeah, abstract, then it doesn't allow for as much restrictions. Now, I would argue that the carve-outs that the courts have, have made um, tend towards conduct, which can be similar but isn't always the same as speech, and they're very sophisticated, and while they might not be applied consistently, I think, point to an environment that allows uh, for the sort of discourse and values that the Constitution presumes, whether it be the marketplace of ideas, as you mentioned earlier, or just the idea that we are autonomous individuals and ha should have the right to be who we are and speak our minds. Uh, and then there's also the search for truth. There's, there's many positions that undergird the First Amendment. Uh, and this is a this is kind of a long way of saying that even First Amendment advocates, free speech advocates, struggle with these questions too. But I think the Supreme Court's approach to it, at least in recent decades, has been sophisticated, and it's gotten as close as as anyone has ever gotten to applying free speech standards consistently. Well, that was a very long question, which had many parts, and let me try to re respond at least to a couple of them. First of all, your the historical point with which you began is correct. It's only in the first 20 years of the, of the 20th century that something uh, recognizable as today's free speech doctrine uh, begins to emerge. Before that, there was something called the bad tendency theory of speech, uh, whereas words or phrases which were considered in and of themselves, no matter what context they appeared in, to be harmful and no question about disallowing those forms of speech uh, were were raised. So, in effect, the First Amendment was largely inert, at least with respect to some questions, before uh, 1919 uh, and 1920. Uh, at that point, there were two tests uh, for uh, disallowing or, in some ways, regulating speech. One was a content test, uh, that is, are these words or ideas so pernicious, um, so blasphemous, uh, so hurtful to the social fabric that they shouldn't be allowed. And the other was an effect test. Uh, that is, is it uh, what kind of effect on the social fabric, again, uh, is produced uh, if these uh, words or phrases are allowed to flourish. The revolution that you speak of uh, is one in which both content and effect, as points or measures of judgment, uh, disappear. And speech is considered of value in and of itself, independently of what the speech 
happens to say, what content it bears on the one hand, or of what effect uh, it uh, happens uh, to produce on the other hand. And as you indicated, that was a fairly long-fought battle, which I believe culminated in victory in 1964 in New York Times versus Sullivan. New York Times versus Sullivan is a case that almost all First Amendment, uh, strong First Amendment advocates celebrate. Uh, it's a case that I and recently uh, Justice Thomas uh, are very suspicious uh, of. Why? Because what happens very specifically uh, in New York Times versus Sullivan is that the content test and the effect tests uh, are, are, are simply uh, dismissed. And instead of asking questions like, what does this speech do or what is its tendency, the question that's asked is, is it speech? And if the answer is yes, then it's protected. And as you know, in New York Times versus Sullivan, that goes so far as to say that defamation and false statements are themselves speech uh, and can, in fact, contribute uh, to some extent to a wide-open, robust, and uninhibited conversation. That's a quote uh, from New York Times uh, uh, versus Sullivan. Now, again, many free speech advocates like my friend, uh, such as my friend Floyd Abrams, uh, for example, celebrate uh, that case. He, he considered it uh, a reason for dancing in the streets uh, when it first was. And I think it's disastrous because it has removed judgment uh, from uh, human judgment uh, from the scene and replaced it with an abstraction, freedom of speech, which is never given real content and which, in, to my mind, doesn't hold up under examination for many reasons. But one reason, which again touches on part of your question, is that the speech-action distinction is impossible to maintain. There's no such, there is no way whatsoever that, uh, that you can coherently or uh, philosophically defend that distinction. And Supreme Court jurisprudence, to my mind, recognizes that because of the devices that it sets in motion, devices whereby something that is an action can be recharacterized as symbolic speech or that something that is a form of speech can be recharacterized as an action. With these two uh, devices in hand, uh, the Supreme Court or any other court um, can put uh, any utterance brought before it on either side of the speech-action distinction. So again, and my answer is going on too long, I don't think the speech-action distinction uh, holds up. I think that the court uh, devises all kinds of mechanisms uh, to hide from itself and from us the fact that it doesn't hold up. Um, and I myself still stand with Hobbes uh, and, uh, and John uh, Milton uh, and, and saying not that uh, the values of free expression uh, are not worth protecting, but that in order to protect them, some forms of expression must in fact be inhibited. The way that this, this has been put by some people, including Abraham Lincoln, uh, is that the Constitution is not a suicide pact. Well, since in discussing New York Times versus Sullivan, it's not that you can just willfully defame anyone. I don't know that they found defamation in the case. It's that it needs to fit 
a certain yeah. um, right. calculation. It, it needs to be uh, – It has to be malicious. Yeah. If, if you're a public figure, you cannot be uh, – you cannot bring a cause of action uh, for a, defi- a, a libel cause of action um, uh, if – unless – uh, the person or or or, or media organ uh, you are uh, uh, suing knew in advance of publication uh, that what was about to be said about you was false and published uh, published never uh, anyway because that would constitute a malicious act uh, and that was in New York Times uh, applied only to public persons. Uh, but in subsequent cases, uh, Gertz versus Robert Welsh and others, uh, the notion of public persons was extended to people who came into association with uh, public events uh, and became weaker and weaker and weaker. Uh, so I would say that libel law in this country uh, has been very much weakened uh, by uh, New York Times uh, versus Sullivan um, and that the general notion that what you say has consequences and that you are responsible for it has begun to be what has been eroded from the New York Times versus Sullivan decision uh, and uh, subsequent decisions that followed in its wake. But to set up another framework in which there is not this presumption of liberty that you are allowed to express an opinion, even if that opinion be false, uh, presumes that everything is true and false, that either true or false, or falls in some sort of clear category. Uh, I think a lot of times, and this is why I think the the willful misrepresentation or the malicious standard is a pretty good one, is we just don't know the truth. We're, we're acting at with the best information available to us. And to set up another standard is to set up a standard where it, Journalism can become impossible. I, I, I have friends who are journalists in the UK, for example, and their libel laws are much more expansive than ours. And I know uh, newspapers that have shut down as a result of lit- the expensive litigation that goes into surrounding those laws. So there are consequences beyond those to the individuals who believe they're being defamed. There are also consequences to innocent actors who are acting on the best information that they have but are not availed of all the information. You ever see the movie Absence of Malice? No, I have not. You should. It's a New York it's it's an anti New York Times versus Sullivan movie. Uh quite uh, uh uh quite explicitly. It stars Paul Newman uh and Sally Field with some brilliant uh, minor performances by uh, very good actors. And it uh explores the position that you have just, just enunciated. And and uh the thesis of that uh the, the thesis of that movie is that New York Times versus Sullivan uh, and uh, a similar decision open up the way for journalists to ruin people's lives. Uh, I remember one time about 20, 25 years ago when uh, Charles Barkley, who was I think then still uh, a National Basketball Association uh, player, uh, spoke uh, to uh, an audience uh, and a member of the audience asked him about the rumor that he uh, was in some kind of relationship with Madonna. Uh, and he said, well, that rumor probably came uh, from uh, certain journalists. He said, and one thing that I can tell you about journalists, 
They are not your friends. And I thought to myself, that guy belongs in the Philosophy Hall of Fame, in addition to being in the NBA uh, Hall of Fame. Uh, I was a dean of the University of Illinois at Chicago's College of Arts and Sciences for five and a half years, uh, and therefore had some dealings uh, with the press. Uh, the press is absolutely a treacherous entity. It's just involved generally in a large game of gotcha. And if you have had no experience with the press and think that you're going in to talk to uh, a journalist and you're just going to tell them the truth, they will eat you alive. Well, I have had experience with, I, I used to be a journalist. I So have, was I. <laughs> I wrote for the Times for 18 years. I, uh, I do media relations, so I work with journalists every day. I do not believe that the basic instinct of most journalists is to be malicious. Uh, I think that they go into most of the stories they write to do a job like the rest of us do, and they do it the best they can. Now, are there certain back, bad actors, just like there are bad acting police? Or there are no bad, bad actors in absence of malice. The person who is most at fault, from the perspective of the movie, is Sally Field, who, as you might imagine, Sally Field only played, or plays, played, rather, uh, characters uh, with the best of intentions. That's not the question. Uh, the question is, do we put journalism, and this is an old question, do we put journalism as a profession in a special place? Should there be a special shield for journalists? Still a topic uh, of debate, uh, as you know. And I say no for the same reason that I am against any expansive idea of academic freedom, which would put which would give academics some kind of special purchase on what they can say without uh, suffering consequences. Well, it seems like you are giving them spe special purchase by saying that they have a greater power to ruin people's lives than other people do. Mm -hmm. Presumably in a framework, in a defamation framework uh, that you might choose, that would be recognized by the court and be a factor in determining damages, correct? Let me seize on something you just said, uh -huh. perhaps to turn the conversation in another, that you might choose. I'm not choosing anything. I don't give any recommendations. When I uh, probe the, uh, when, I, when I probe what I call the discourse, the strong discourse uh, of uh, First Amendment proponents, I do so to uncover problems, fissures, and contradictions to show why things don't work in the way that First Amendment uh, theorists often assume that they do. The question then legitimately comes back to me, uh, well, then what would you put in its place? And I have no answer at but all. Is it, but isn't that the argument of us free speech advocates? Is that there, and this is something we touched on at the beginning of the conversation, is we do not have a better That's right, uh, we don't. vehicle no, I, to I, answer I, these I, questions. Yeah, if you, uh, in my book, I, uh, I say, uh, quite explicitly, several times. One, I don't think free speech doctrine intellectually uh, holds up, that there's no philosophical or argumentative coherence to it. Two, I don't think we should abandon it. <laughs> and I don't think we should abandon that because even though every part of it is questionable and is in the strongest sense of the word a fiction... It's a fiction that we need for certain purposes, and therefore we should retain it. Just 
don't believe in it. Just don't worship it. My biggest, uh, oh, no, that would be too strong a statement. Uh, what I dislike intensely is free speech offered as a theology, as something we worship. And, of course, liberalism has left us in that position. Since the first gesture uh, of liberalism, liberal, classical liberalism, is to dethrone unimpeachable authority and instead to sub substitute for the unimpeachable authority of a god or a scripture uh, the earned authority of men and women freely trying to figure things out. Uh, since, uh, uh, since that's the first move of free uh, speech doctrine, uh, free speech doctrine, or rather the first move of liberalism, liberalism, having dethroned ultimate authority, tries to bootstrap itself up to some form of ultimate authority and never succeeds and never could succeed. Uh, and that is why it has to put fictions, like the fictions that undergird the First Amendment, in place. And again, I'm not against those fictions. I'm just in the business of pointing out that that's what they are. So in the introduction to your book, you talk about a couple of cases, tragic cases, recent cases of uh, mass shootings. You talk about the mm -hmm. shooting in the synagogue, I believe, in Pittsburgh. Uh, you also talk about the, the man who sent pipe bombs to CNN. Um, and you write that if they didn't have an Internet community where their views would be parroted back at them and amplified to the point where every toxic thought they entertained seemed universally shared, would the seeds of hatred perhaps not have flowered in the actions they ultimately took? I think it's a good point, but I also think it's one that ignores history insofar as people like them have always existed. You know, I read books about, I wasn't around in the 70s and the 60s, but there were bombings almost every day. This is before the internet. Uh, and then it also presumes that they only happen because their thoughts are shared. Now, undergirding the freedom of speech is the freedom of thought. And I think that's and you Say might agree, the, undergirding the freedom of speech is the freedom to think. In order to speak frequently, you need to be able to think clearly, correct? I don't know. I'm not sure what you're staking on this. It sounds almost too commonplace uh, to have any bite. Well, what I'm saying is if they can think these thoughts, mm -hmm. then these actions can occur regardless of whether they can express these thoughts, right? It's not just the, 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 th the, the hateful things that they express. It's the hateful things they think that cause them to do these, these actions. So if the thought is, well, we might need to censor these speakers because this allows for the, uh, the actions that took place, the devastating and tragic actions that take place, if we could as a society get into their thoughts, would we be any more justified in doing in restricting their thoughts, if we could, this is like the the movie Minority Report. Mm -hmm. If you've ever oh, seen yes, that, Tom, with Tom Cruise, with Tom Cruise, uh, an interesting philosophical, right, a, a Dick story. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, I don't talk about thoughts, and none of the people whose work I would uh, cite, uh, like Thomas Hobbes or Milton or Immanuel Kant, uh, for that matter, uh, would be talking about thoughts uh, in that way. But Kant has an interesting theory of the way in which uh, a society should be organized. As he puts it, it should be organized uh, by principles that could be followed, quote, by a nation of devils. 
And by that he means that it's not uh, a matter or shouldn't be a matter of great concern what men and women have in their hearts or in their minds. Uh, Rather, you should institute uh, laws uh, that uh, uh, force them or compel them to obey in certain ways independently of what's in their heart and in the hope that if they obey habitually in a while, uh, uh, what's in their heart uh, might change. What, what Kant is getting at and what I'm here uh, building on is the idea that if you have laws which clearly label certain forms of speech as beyond the pale, that is itself a factor that discourages even people whose thoughts are congruent with those forms of speech uh, to utter them. It's just one among many possible ways of organizing our society. Now, all of the First Amendment disputes that uh, uh, occur, uh, occur along this fault line. Consider, for example, the long-standing disputes about pornography and whether or not pornography uh, is uh, something that should uh, in some way uh, be regulated uh, by the state. The argument for the regulation of pornography made by people like Catherine McKinnon uh, or Jeremy uh, Waldron is that if you put pornography into the world and allow what we might call the landscape of society to be saturated with it, that means that there's a certain set of presumptions and assumptions uh, which go to the placing, which have the effect of placing women in subordinate positions and presenting women as uh, creatures who are actually pleased by the abuse, hostility, and aggression they face. That's a consequence, according to McKinnon and Waldron, of allowing pornography freely to circulate. Uh, and therefore, again, in their, uh, in their arguments, if pornography instead uh, were, were regulated um, and disallowed, the amount of abuse women would receive would be lessened because the general picture of them as creatures seeking that abuse would not, in fact, be broadcast. Now, that's an argument. That's a real argument. And again, these arguments are all probabilistic arguments. As you indicated in your question, it might go one way and it might go another way. But what I keep saying is that there's no particular value or virtue that I've ever been able to see to allowing everything to be said and to buying into the free speech mantra that the more speech, the better. I don't believe in the more speech, the better. The more speech, the better is what's given us the internet. Uh, and uh, the inter- a, a, a cesspool unlike any other uh, that we have ever seen in the world. And the Internet is also, as I say in one of my chapters, uh, uh, one of the uh, mothers of fake news. But it's also given us access to the world's knowledge on a scale that 
unforeseen in any other point in human history. If my students who are addicted to the internet are any <laughs> example, it hasn't given them access to anything because they've never heard of Thomas Hobbes. They've never heard of John Milton. They've never heard basically of anything that's happened in the history uh, uh, of uh, the United States. They don't know who Franklin Delano Roosevelt was. They don't know anything. And these are law students. And why don't they know anything? They don't know anything because they just listen Listen to podcasts like yours. <laughs> well, is this a new phenomenon? Because it seems to me that every generation says that the former generation doesn't know anything. I've been teaching for 57 years, and my students knew something 57 years ago. And the reason that they knew something, and this is the other side of the d discussion that we've been having, the reason that they knew something is they had all taken civics courses of the kind that I took when I was in high school and in my freshman year in college. They were all forced to learn a set of things about the way this country worked, including a sketchy version of this country's history. Uh, they were all introduced to important cultural artifacts, which were explained and discussed and in some, t in some cases of, of films uh, shown. Uh, and uh, what's happened is that that general sense of a cultural set of norms with a particular content uh, has been abandoned in a favor of a free-for-all. Uh, let a hundred flowers bloom. Let a thousand flowers bloom. But it sounds as though you're criticizing the teachers. I mean, the, the, the civics education stuff has, has very little to do with the internet. It has to do with the teachers who set the curricula. No, but I'm just making an analogy here. In other words, when I bring, when I bring up uh, the civics... Having, it's all, it's John Stuart Mill at the end of On Liberty complains, as, as you may recall, about public education. What's his complaint about public education? That it in fact pushes students in one direction rather than another. And so he argues for a form of public education that is in fact opinion free and only devoted to facts an impossible and, in fact, a silly ideal. But his point is that as long as you have education, you're going to have people being nudged in some philosophical-slash-moral direction rather than another. And I say, yeah, that's right. So it's your business, my business as a political animal, to gain control of the political machinery insofar as we can and then, assure, then ensure uh, that what's taught in the schools and what's broadcast over the airways conforms to our ideas of what is right and wrong. Now, what's the alternative to that? The alternative to that is to just allow some abstract notion of truth to emerge, and it never will. Well, by presenting various sides of an argument, by uh, presenting... You are really deep into it. <laughs> well, yeah, I am. But... I, I don't. I don't know why you need to take a political position in order to educate. I mean, unless you think there's, yeah. unless well, you need, unless you think the mere choosing of sources who might come from various political uh, perspectives, and and we should acknowledge here that not all education. Can I ask you a question? Is sure. That, yeah. Of course. Uh, do you subscribe to the Monahan quip? We are You are entitled to your own opinions, but not to your own facts. Yes, I, I think I would. I, I, I'm glad you said that. I was <laughs> counting on it. Uh, but no, of course you are entitled to your own facts. 
if you can make them stick. The Monaghan quip and statements like it presuppose what I call the psychology of liberalism. Uh, and that is a, a psychology that I've mentioned before where the mind is simply uh, 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 passing judgment uh, on, 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 on what uh, uh, passes uh, and what passes before it. Uh, and it's also a psychology which assumes that facts are lying there in the world waiting to be seen by a clear-eyed observer. My counter-argument, and it's not only mine, I can cite hundreds of philosophers uh, to support this, is that facts emerge in the context of argument and debate and then are established as facts for a while until a new round of context and debate establishes another set of facts. What that means is that the facts that are for us at the moment facts achieve that status by virtue of an act of persuasion. So that if you manage, or if I manage, if we manage to persuade a significant number of our fellow citizens of our opinions, those opinions then become facts for a while. So there's no distinction, finally, between fact and opinion. Opinions are facts in waiting. And what they're waiting for is to emerge victorious uh, in the context of debate and argument. See, it's interesting because I don't disagree with you. I guess what I disagree with is that there are certain things that are testable and empirical, and maybe those are in the realm of science. Now you're going to exp Now, let me ask you another question. Okay. Do you believe in the distinction between faith on the one hand and reason or empirical investigation on the other? Well, yes. Yes, I, I thought you would. Yeah, of course of course, I do. So yeah. I've fallen into your trap. Of course I don't. <laughs> I taught a course yesterday in the movie, a class yesterday in the movie Inherit the Wind, mm -hmm. which is a movie about the Scopes trial. Yeah, the Scopes trial. Early part of it. Um, 20th century. And that's a, a movie produced and directed by uh, Stanley Kramer, who was a stalwart First Amendment liberal. Uh, and uh, uh, the entire dramatic rhetoric of the movie depends on the distinction uh, between faith on the one hand and reason, especially reason associated with scientific experiments uh, on the other hand. That distinction doesn't hold up for a second. That distinction doesn't hold up. What you're dealing with in science, as opposed to, let's say, Orthodox Christianity or something else, are two different faiths, two different kinds of faiths undergirded by radically opposed assumptions and presuppositions. But it's radically, but it's presuppositions and assumptions which are generating the evidence and facts on both sides. Uh, again. You have, I can tell, uh, and I say this with all the generosity that I can muster, <laughs> you are deeply marred in the, in, in, in the basic uh, assumptions and presuppositions of classical liberalism. And anything else that is brought to you, anything that uh, is brought to you by some kind of retrograde sinner like me, mm -hmm. sounds outlandish and obviously perverse. No, not necessarily, because otherwise I wouldn't be having these, this conversation with you. Good point. <laughs> but, you know, we're at the corner of what, 5th and 12th Avenue? It's, yeah. are, you, are you telling me that it's not a fact that we're oh, at the corner no, of 5th or 12th on, come Avenue? On, come are, on. Look, you ever read The Structure of Scientific Revolution? I have not. Okay. Do you know what it is? No. Okay. 
It's a book that is probably the most influential book in the physical, uh, in the social sciences and humanities for the past 75 years. Uh, and that's not an understatement. That's not a, a that is an overstatement. Uh, Kuhn's project is the history of science, as his title suggests. And what he does is challenge the picture that I've already referred to, where he says that science is not an activity in which gener one generation, uh, because of uh, using its powers of observation and experiment, adds to the details of the description of nature uh, that was begun by previous generations. What he's saying is that scientific knowledge is not cumulative uh, in the way that the usual picture of science suggests. Instead, scientific knowledge, that is the establishment of scientific fact, depends on what he calls paradigms. And what's a paradigm? A paradigm is the set of in-place assumptions and authorized methodologies uh, that govern and are, in fact, the content of scientific investigation at any moment. Paradigms, rather than any uh, direct confrontation uh, between the observer and the world, paradigms are what produces evidence and interpretations, and finally interpretations that are persuasive and successful for a while until that paradigm, for reasons that he details, uh, is dislodged uh, by another. When that happens, when the paradigm within which scientific observers work, Kuhn says, changes, one might say, without exaggeration, that the world in which the scientific practitioner works has itself changed. See, I don't, I don't buy it, though, because there are things that scientists do, maybe through this paradigm, that presume that produce a tangible result that only come as a result of... Changing the paradigm won't change the result. Tangible result is itself, along with, uh, uh, along with other talismanic mm -hmm. phrases like that, tangible result will be recognized as one depending on what para in, in what paradigmatic point of view uh, you are situated. What Kuhn would say, and he's not the only one, and I'm not the only one, uh, and, uh, is that whatever, let's, that any conclusion that you might reach and be confident in is not supported by some correspondence between your methodological, descriptive, uh, protocol and the world, rather it's produced by the paradigm within which you are ensconced and of which and of which you are in some sense an extension. I really urge you to read this book because he considers all the, he doesn't he's not debunking science mm -hmm. and he's not debunking scientific achievement. He's just giving a different picture of it which challenges, uh, what he thinks of as uh, the oversimplified uh, picture, again, of a world out there waiting to be correctly described and we as rational observers having the task to describe it. But we've gotten a long way. Uh, I know, from, from our initial topic, I will saying. put that book in our show notes so both I and our listeners can review it. I, I will say I am skeptical because I don't know that there is a paradigm shift that would produce a different you're looking to make cement, there's one formula that we use to make certain 
categories of cement. He, I don't know how shifting the paradigm. He has is. examples mm-hmm. which you would at least have to consider. Yes, and of they're course. Very, and they're very powerful. He says things like, one moment there were swinging stones, and in the next moment, that is the moment after a certain uh, scientific observation was hazarded, there were pendulums. So what he's going to say, in other words, the usual way of thinking about it was, oh, there are always pendulums. It's just that after a while, science uh, developed a vocabulary and a descriptive method that allowed uh, us to specify what a pendulum mm-hmm. was. And he's saying, uh-uh, the descriptive method is what produces the pendulism, pendulum. It's not the pendulum that tests the descriptive method. It's a big argument. And uh, it, uh, as you say, uh, 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 provokes skepticism, uh, not only in, in you, but in, in many readers. And it's been very controversial. But it's the kind of argument that was made uh, in, uh, in the history of science before Kuhn by a man named Norbert Hansen. It's a kind of argument that has been made by major philosophers uh, like uh, William James and William Quine, uh, Richard Rorty, Strawson, uh, and others. In other words, the, this argument that I'm presenting to you uh, is by no means, at least in the history uh, of, of philosophy, since Hobbes, because Hobbes makes the same argument too. It's by no means a, 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 an odd or uh, um, outlying uh, argument. No, and I'm not suggesting it is. I'm just suggest. I'm just stating that I'm I'm skeptical of it because, as I've already mentioned, and we can move on after this. There are chemists who go to work every day, produce a formula to create a result that I don't think you could change the paradigm or the way we think about that formula that would produce a different result. It's happened over and over again, and Kuhn and others have given examples. Okay, well, which which you could which you could at least consider. Yeah, and I will put it in the show notes here so our listeners can consider Good. it as well. And I. You know, I realize we're, we've already been going for, what, 53 minutes at this point, uh, and well, we haven't even gotten to China. All right. And you, and I, I want to discuss that because it's perhaps the most newsworthy things that, thing that you've written. Well, I wrote something yesterday about uh, Zuckerberg's uh, interchange with a uh, congressman from New York, AOC, mm-hmm. uh, about uh, whether or not Facebook is responsible for the content that it offers. Well, let's see if we get, get time to go to there, because I do want to touch on China. Yeah, sure. Uh, you wrote an op-ed in, uh, in the New York Daily News called In Defense of the NBA, the league has every right to come down hard on critics of China mm-hmm. who work for it. Uh, Adam Silver, to refresh our listeners' memory here, the league came down pretty hard on Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morey, who tweeted... Uh, to the tweeted fight for freedom stand with Hong Kong more or less, and uh, there was backlash to the NBA uh, coming down on General Manager Daryl Morey because people saw that as a capitulation to China, with whom the NBA has a lot of business dealings. It's a huge market; uh, they make a lot of money over in China. They saw it as an abdication of principles. In this case, principles of free expression. Right. To to capitulate, Adam Silver said, we will protect our employees' freedom of speech. But you say that it isn't a, it doesn't need not be a concern of the NBA, the protection of, of freedom, freedom of speech. speech. I say the same thing about the academy. Yes. In my chapter on, on uh, academic life, uh, which is entitled, as you know, free speech is not an academic value. 
Uh, what links these two apparently disparate situations, the NBA on the other hand, and the classroom or research laboratory uh, on the other hand, is that in both contexts, free speech values are not central to the enterprise. It's not central to the what we might call the business that the two enterprises are in. The university is in the education business. It's in the business of imparting knowledge, of, in, of, of uh, advancing the search for truth. And in the context of those two goals, uh, something like a free speech principle is occasionally relevant, but not extraordinarily uh, precisely irrelevant. What I say about the uh, academic context is that the reigning value in the academy is freedom of inquiry. And freedom of inquiry as an ethic or as something uh, obligatory for academics to engage in it has nothing to do with free speech because, in fact, only those who have been vetted by various officials in the university world, department chairs, deans, editors of learned journals, etc., are allowed to speak. Much of what goes on in the university is telling certain persons, you're not going to have your say whether you're students or professors or people who would want to be professors, we're sending you away because we have judged you as having a voice not worthy to be heard. And that seems to me to be perfectly correct because the test should not be, does, what we're, does the situation here contribute to the flourishing of free speech? It should be, does the situation we uh, uh, see here Contrib okay. <laughs> con contribute to the flourishing of education? Different questions. Same thing with the NBA. When uh, Mitch McConnell warned the NBA against, uh, uh, against putting profits ahead of free speech, my response to that is that that's what the business the NBA is in, putting profits ahead of free speech. Free speech has nothing to do with the National Basketball Association except as a public relations matter. So as I say in my piece, Silver was right to fly the free speech banner after a while because he saw that it would be necessary uh, to maintain a good public relations aspect uh, for the league. I don't think he meant it for a second, and I hope he didn't. I hope he was totally insincere because I believe that his only, his only goal, which is the goal of his job, is to ensure the health, stability, and growth of the league. And to repeat what I've already said, he's not in the free speech business. It's just, you know, it's just a distraction. So I see no reason for the NB. If I were, I would have gotten rid of this guy immediately. Uh, and the test would not have been a free speech test. The test would have been, is what he said damaging uh, to the enterprise, the enterprise being the NBA? And the answer is obviously yes. Therefore, get rid of him. So in that case, you would need certain speech codes for example, no, within these organizations. Well, yes, because no, you wouldn't. Or, no you would need to, or you would need to tell them that they can't be on Twitter and they can't express any opinion outside that. A good idea. A good <laughs> idea. In other words, it shouldn't be the case, you know, if the NBA were to say, look, we're in, a, we're in the entertainment business, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and we're trying to grow that business. What we've discovered is that any intervention by us as a legal by uh, individuals who work for us into the political realm harbors trouble. Therefore, 
we are now saying that no one who works for the NBA, coach, player, mm -hmm. uh, team official, should in fact make political pronouncements. And that's a speech code, though. That's a, a code that proscribes political speech. And I'm, and it's, I'm, not, I'm but not saying it's, it's, not, a, it's not a you know, calling it a speech code. I, I resist your characterization. It a, characterization yeah. of it as a speech code. It's no. It's saying, look, this kind of talk, if it's engaged in by the uh, people identified with the National Basketball uh, Association is going to redound to the harm of the National Basketball Association. Therefore, we don't want any of it. It's, you know, I suppose you could call it a speech code in, this, in the same manner uh, that you could uh, label something a dress code. Mm -hmm. You know, that there are rules uh, that the NBA uh, has, which are not articulated, but obviously enforced that its players and coaches, uh, when they appear on camera, uh, are supposed to appear uh, in ways that suggest uh, that uh, they are normal, reasonable uh, human beings. So, yeah, it's a speech code in a way, but it's a speech code that has nothing to do with speech. It's a speech code, if you want to call it that, which is instituted because the people who are members of the NBA enterprise recognize that their first obligation uh, is to ensure the health, stability, and growth, as I said before, of that enterprise. Same with the university. The university administrators, who are in general clueless about everything, but especially about the jobs that they have and the responsibilities that attend those jobs, should never be worried about the free speech rights uh, of their employees or students or faculty or staff. What they should be worried about again is the health of the enterprise. The question that she'd be asking is, is our allowing, is our allowing of this or flourishing of this activity, even if the activity is speech, helpful to the educational mission or hurtful to the educational mission? If the answer is hurtful to the educational mission, exit, whether it's speech or anything else. Isn't what our argument, of course, would be that speech is helpful to the mission. I mean, we just had the conversation Sometimes. about about deliberation occasionally. And, and occasionally, occasionally, as I say doesn't, in the book, doesn't free, the free, free speech values and academic values do intersect. If we had a Venn diagram, mm -hmm. they would intersect, you know, just at the edges. But in general, they are not the same thing, unless you unless you deny or disagree with my distinction between freedom of speech as a value and freedom of inquiry. Well, as a I value. don't disagree with them as separate values, but I think the overlap in that Venn diagram it may be larger than I think. The, it larger than you think it is, because to me, the freedom to inquire, and we can uh, finish up here. I think we're at an hour. Well, somebody is coming in, but when they knock on the door. We'll okay, finish. we'll give five minutes. Sure, uh, whatever you, you know. <laughs> the, the freedom to inquire presumes the freedom to express opinions about the thing you're inquiring no, no, about. That's too abstract for me. Too abstract even for you. Oh, very much too abstract. <laughs> okay. The freedom to inquire, freedom of inquiry is defined by the goal of the enterprise. The goal of the enterprise is to advance the search for truth, to attempt to get at the truth about matters in the humanities, social sciences, physical sciences, mathematics, computer sciences, okay? That's freedom of inquiry. 
Freedom of inquiry is instituted because it's generally recognized that we're not going to be able to ascertain the truth about a matter if either some view of it is anointed in advance as the preferred one or other views of it are dismissed in advance at ones that should never be heard. That's a point of overlap between freedom of inquiry and freedom of speech. In both instances, the presumption is that you shouldn't anoint truths uh, or, uh, or, or stigmatize candidates for the truth uh, uh, in advance. There's a point of similarity. But after that, I think the two enterprises diverge because, as I put it before, what the university is is, an, is, is generally a mechanism of exclusion of voices rather than allowing of all voices into the mix. Now, an allowing of all voices into the mix is what, in fact, let's say students uh, are requesting when they think that their opinions uh, should be heard in a classroom if they uh, want uh, if, if they wish to utter them. Or, of course, it is my view that a student opinion uh, should be heard in the classroom only if the instructor wants it to be heard. Uh, and the an instructor can say, I'm not interested, which is what I say to my students, I'm not interested in any of your opinions. So don't give them to me. See, see now, I don't disagree with you there. I, And it's not the position of fire that students should have free reign to control the classroom. We, we believe professors have the right to control that aspect of the classroom. Now, we institutionally don't have strong opinions on what is good pedagogy and what is bad pedagogy, but we generally believe that you learn more by having that freedom to acquire, uh, inquire, that freedom to express your innermost thoughts and proscribing those thoughts hinders the academic enterprise. It, well, it I disagree entirely because most students haven't gotten a thought in their heads. <laughs> most students, I remember there's a friend of mine who's a noted theologian by the name of Stanley Harawas who was once asked by his student after a class, why don't you let more of us speak? Uh, isn't it, you know, don't, don't, don't you want us to tell you what's on our minds? And Harawas replied, you don't have a mind yet. It's my job to give you one. So you're not a big fan then of the Socratic method, which I've used it occasionally. Mm-hmm. I think any there are many many pedagogical techniques, and all of them uh, can be useful in different contexts. But I, I don't uh, regard the Socratic method uh, as as a, a, a particularly a singularly uh, uh, valuable one. Sometimes, you know, sometimes a pedagogical situation. Uh, calls for it. Sometimes it doesn't. I'm a pragmatist in in, in that uh, matter. But do you believe that professors need to put differing ideas into their students' head no. and force them to grapple with it? No, it depends. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I teach Milton. Oh, I used to I used to teach Milton. Yeah, there, there are many many Miltonic you know approaches to Milton. As far as I'm concerned, the only uh, crucial uh, uh, approach to Milton is through his theology. Uh, that is, I believe that his works are all theological, that in order to understand what's going on uh, in them, not only in the prose works, but in the great uh, poems like Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained and Samson Agonistes, that you have to be steeped in Milton's theology. Now, other people will teach a Freudian Milton. Uh, other people uh, will teach a Milton geared to questions about uh, social justice and other issues. Uh, my attitude to, toward them is they can teach whatever they want. But in my class, 
What we're going to be talking about is Milton's theology and the way in which it is realized uh, in both his polemical work and his literary work. That's it. I don't, I'm not interested in other perspectives on Milton because I don't think those other perspectives on Milton But you really had to first consider those perspectives before believing that your perspective is the valid one well, to what's, teach. What's the content of consider in the sentence you just Well, you had to learn this Freudian perspective in right. order to realize that it right. wasn't a better perspective than the one you currently harbor in the same way that your discourse about science that we right, just yeah. had is something that I need to consider right. before yeah. I can yeah, reject yeah, it. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. So what's your point? What's your next point? Well, my, my, my point is it's important to present all these considerations. Oh, no, no. You've, you've, sl- you've slid. When I was studying, when, when I was becoming an academic mm-hmm. uh, who presumably uh, you know, was uh, acting responsibly with respect mm-hmm. to uh, uh, my uh, presentations in class, I was aware of many approaches to my subject, uh, 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 the majority of which I cho- chose not to adopt for myself, right? That's what you're saying. Yes. All right, right. But, I, but that, do, that doesn't translate into a pedagogical obligation to put my students through the same experience. Unless, let's say, let's say, come on in. Unless I'm... You can t- hear me arguing with him. <laughs> unless... We'll be done in a second. <laughs> uh, you can take... No, actually. All right. Unless... I'm teaching, let's say I'm teaching a course, the title of which is Approaches to Literary Theory. Mm -hmm. Or, more likely these days, I will teach a course called Approaches to Legal Interpretation. Mm -hmm. If I have titled my course Approaches to Legal Interpretation, it's part of my obligation, I believe, to introduce my students to all of the candidates in the field, not only the one or two uh, uh, that I find persuasive. But that's because that's the kind of course I'm teaching. Yeah. I'm teaching a course which surveys approaches to legal interpretation. In another kind of course, uh, where I wasn't doing that, uh, but was doing something narrower, I would find no oblig- I would feel no obligation uh, to survey all the approaches. But your points are elucidated by at least acknowledging those other points, as you do in this book, the first. I mean, you present arguments on both sides before explaining why your point is the best one. And I think that's... I mean, it's my position that that is a good way to approach the issue. In some cases, again, I uh-huh. return to my point that pedagogically that's sometimes a useful way to proceed and sometimes it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people who decide not to do it and, for example, uh, adopt the, the old lecture uh, method where, where you stand up for, for 50 minutes and tell the students the truth, mm-hmm. that's fine. Uh, other people want to engage students in what you called a, mo- a few moments ago, Socratic Dialogue. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's just that I'm not in the, I, I don't want to anoint one of these uh, as the preferred method because of some general idea of the way in which the mind best works. You've got to examine some of these ideas that you're so in love with. <laughs> well, I hope that's what we did on this episode, yeah, Professor. Very good. <laughs> I hope that's what we did. And you've got a student in your office here, so I'm going to wrap it up. Uh, the book is The First, How to Think About Hate Speech, Campus Speech, Religious Speech, Fake News, Post-Truth, and Donald Trump. And it comes out on November 5th. I will have a link to order the book in the show notes to this podcast. Professor, thank you so much for coming Thank you. Along. You were great. Thank you. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and recorded by me as well. It is edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at 
twitter.com slash free speech talk twitter something professor stanley fish is not the biggest fan of <laughs> or you can like us on facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast you can also email us feedback at so to speak at the fire.org if you enjoyed this episode please consider leaving us a review on apple podcasts or google play they help us attract new listeners to the show and until next time thanks again for listening <laughs>